0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins.
1: Good evening, and welcome to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, a senior fellow for Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council. It's my pleasure to be with you today. Tony will be back in the chair on Monday. Quick reminder that the website is Tony Com. Also, another quick reminder to register for the Pray, Vote, Stand Summit that is now coming up next week in Atlanta, Georgia, September 14th through the 16th. Go to PrayVoteStand.org slash summit to register. Do it quickly. Look forward to seeing many of you there. Today on the program, there has been a lot of talk about fascism and threats to democracy lately. But a new report from the Religious Freedom Institute concludes that there is an ongoing threat to pro-life organizations and churches. Why do they say that? Uh, We'll talk about that in the program a little later. Also, as each state has its own debate on abortion, it's bringing up some old debates that may be based on bad science. Is abortion ever necessary to protect the life of the mother? We'll talk about that today as well. Also, Kamala Harris went to church and said Christians should support abortion. Did you know that atheists are twice as likely to make political donations as evangelicals? We'll talk about all of that in our worldview segment at the end of the program. But first, our headline. This Sunday, we remember the 21st anniversary of the 9-11 attacks when close to 3,000 people died in New York City, Pennsylvania, and at the Pentagon. We also remember the life of queen elizabeth ii who broke a long-standing royal tradition by singing the star-spangled banner at a 9-11 memorial service shortly after the attacks. as should be apparent one of the keys to preventing terrorism is a strong border with competent immigration controls however we are currently witnessing the opposite of this at our southern border with devastating results this fiscal year more than 750 migrants have died at the border Casualties are undoubtedly inflated by immigration policies that encourage such dangerous trips. Joining me now to discuss this and more is U.S. Representative Michael Guest. He serves on the House Homeland Security Committee, the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, and the House Ethics Committee. He represents Mississippi's 3rd District. Congressman Guest, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you for having me today.
1: Good to talk to you. First, it's always a somber holiday. What are your thoughts as we approach the 21st anniversary of 9-11?
2: You know, 9-11 is a day uh, that myself and and all Americans uh, who uh, were of age will never forget where they were uh, when they found out uh, about the terrorist attacks uh, on 9-11. I remember uh, at that time I was an assistant prosecutor uh, and I was uh, on my way into the office uh, when I was told that a plane had hit the World Trade Center, uh, I got into my office uh, and, and like many Americans, early on, the information uh, was that it was a uh, a small plane that had hit the World Trade Center. And it was not until the second strike on the World Trade Center that we actually knew that uh, our nation was under attack. Uh, we know that later uh, a subsequent plane uh, struck the Pentagon and a fourth plane uh, crashed uh, outside of a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Uh, and a day we'll never forget. I remember... Uh, going into the courtroom that day, uh, and the judge doing something uh, on that day that uh, he had never done before has not done since, uh, he opened court uh, with the word of prayer. And so there, uh, the, the judge uh, leading uh, us in a, a moment of first silence and then prayer, you had prosecutors, defense attorneys, law enforcement officers, and criminal defendants uh, all uh, there in the courtroom uh, praying for our nation. Uh, so a day that we will truly never forget. Uh, I had the opportunity last year to join Uh, members of the Homeland Security Committee as we held hearings uh, there in in New York to commemorate the 20th anniversary uh, of 9-11. And we must remain vigilant. Uh, While that has been now uh, two-plus decades ago, uh, we know that there are still individuals abroad who would seek to cause American harm, uh, and we can never let our guard down, and we can never let what happened on 9-11 happen again to our nation.
1: Congressman, that scene you just described of being in court and having a judge lead a moment of prayer with defense attorneys and and prosecutors and even defendants all praying together, it helps us recall a moment of unity that really seems to have passed for our country. And regrettably so. And at that time, one of the one of the anthems that we repeated was never forget, uh, because of the significance of that moment do you think that we are as a country remaining appropriately vigilant against those who want to harm our country
2: you know i i i believe that uh law enforcement is remaining vigilant uh and and we're seeing the the continued work together between federal state and local law enforcement Uh, i am extremely troubled with what i'm seeing along the southwest border uh, as we continue to see month after month record number of immigrants entering our country Uh, The last figures that we had were just under 200,000 for the month of uh, July. Uh, That broke a streak of five months with 200,000-plus encounters. Uh, We know that under this president, uh, we've seen roughly 3.5 million encounters along the southwest border. We've encountered people who have been on the terrorist uh, watch list. Uh, You know, if if you look just the sheer numbers themselves, uh, you know, the, the number that have been encountered along the southwest border is greater than the population of 21 uh, of our states uh, across uh, this great union. Uh, and so those numbers continue to grow each and every day. Uh, and this administration has either been unwilling or unable to prevent that. Uh, and so my greatest concern not is that we're going to see terrorists come in and, and hijack airlines like we saw on 9-11, but we're going to see them come across our poorest southwest border uh, and then come into this country uh, and cause death and destruction.
1: Now, Congressman, you say there that the administration is either unable or unwilling to do anything about it. Do you have a theory as to which it is?
2: Uh, It it, it is probably a combination of both. You know, uh, one of the things uh, that we saw this president do, President Biden, day one roll back the successful policies of the Trump administration, stopped wall construction. Uh, And look, we know that walls work. Uh, I've been to the southwest border uh, multiple times. I was there twice in April. We'll be returning uh, again in two weeks. Uh, I'll tell you that the areas where we uh, have built fencing, uh, built, built walls, if you will, uh, those areas prevent immigrants from coming across the border. The areas where we do not have that wall construction is where we yeah. see uh, the number of immigrants continue to pour across. Uh, we saw that this Uh, administration very quickly uh, ended the Remain in Mexico policy. Again, a very successful Trump era era policy. uh, And they are doing everything within their power to end Title 42, which allows us to very rapidly uh, return back to their uh, native countries, uh, immigrants who come across the border. And so this administration uh, has seen a record number of immigrants Uh, And with the flood of immigrants, we've seen a record amount of narcotics that are coming into the country each and every day. Uh, We only uh, intercept the tip of the iceberg of narcotics that were seized last year, physical year 20. uh we seized over 2.6 billion, billion with a B dosage units of fentanyl and over 17 billion dosage units of, of methamphetamine. Uh, so we continue to see drugs pour into our country. We continue to see unvetted aliens come into our country. Uh, and it is just a matter of time until we see that we have... S- s- Something occur along the lines of 9-11 because we are unable to secure and vet those individuals, secure our borders and vet those individuals coming into our country.
1: And that is, of course, the nightmare scenario that that we can draw a connection between the porous border and additional terrorist deaths. We know that there are deaths happening, both in migrants and the results of the drugs that are coming into the country through the border. Uh, But we do not want to see another terrorist strike. And that is, of course, the concern. But now we're seeing the crisis at the border uh, begin to impact states' That are not on the border, and that is due in large part because uh, Texas Governor Abbott has made news by busing people who enter his state illegal to cities that had previously declared themselves to be sanctuary cities, but they aren't enthusiastic about what Governor Abbott is doing. Here's D.C. Mayor, Mayor excuse me, Miro Bowser. Let's play clip one. Today I'm providing a situational update on the ongoing uh, humanitarian crisis that's taking place in our city uh, as a result of the actions of of the governors of Texas and Arizona. Anybody in my position uh, likes likes to know what the environment is. Unknowns are bad. And what we're dealing with is a big unknown. uh, And it's an unknown that's being imposed on us. And here also is Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Let's play clip three.
3: It is absolutely un-American, and I urge him. He professes to be a Christian. This is not the Christianity and the teachings of the Bible that I know.
1: Now, Congressman Guest, uh, what's your reaction to these mayors? They have declared themselves sanctuary cities, but now that they're being asked to be a sanctuary, uh, they don't seem to be enthusiastic about that.
2: Uh, They don't. And I hope the comments that we just saw were directed at the president of the United States, uh, not the governor of Texas. Uh, The president of the United States, he is the one that has caused this crisis and they need to make sure that they call him out uh, for uh, the mayor of Washington, D.C. to declare a public health emergency over the the few number of immigrants uh, that have been. Uh, dropped off there in Washington, D.C., is really comical. What these mayors need to do is these mayors need to join with Republicans and call out this president and and, and demand that this president secure the border. This should not be a problem. This the state of Texas and Arizona and New Mexico. uh, I think what we see is what the Texas governor is doing is he is making every community a border community. And these mayors are having just a small fraction of what we are seeing uh, occurring uh, in our in our southwest uh, uh, border communities. Uh, and so they need to call and the balls and strikes and they need to call this president out. This is not something that has been caused by Governor Abbott. This column has been caused by President Biden and they should work with Republicans to make sure that he knows and make sure that we demand that he secure and close the border. Hey,
1: Congressman, guess that that Raises a good question because not every state on the southern border is a red state. California borders Mexico as well. Is that border more secure? Why do we not hear about uh, the migration happening at the California border?
2: Well, you've got a smaller geographical area. I mean, when you compare the border of California with Mexico and the border of Texas, uh, they have such a small geographical area. Uh, and many of the areas of the California borders have been secure with uh, with walls and fence uh, areas that that we don't see in many other parts uh, of our Southwest border, uh, and so they have avoided uh, a lot of the humanitarian crisis. Just the number of immigrants who have poured into the country. Many of those are coming in uh, into Arizona, uh, into New Mexico, into Texas, uh, and, and then uh, these governors are, are to alleviate some of the the the, the stresses on some of these communities uh, are choosing to relocate these areas in other places, New York, Chicago, uh, and other areas, Washington, D.C., and now we see that these mayors are now complaining about that. And so, again, they are suffering just a small fraction of what we're seeing along the southwest border, and they need to help Republicans call this president out and demand that we secure our borders just like we did under former President Donald Trump.
1: And TO THAT POINT, DO YOU THINK THAT SHARING THE BURDEN OF THE BORDER CRISIS WILL GET SOME DEMOCRATS TO PRESSURE THE WHITE HOUSE TO f- SOLVE THE PROBLEM?
2: Uh, I, I DO. Uh, I MEAN, YOU CAN SEE THAT REPUBLICANS ALONE, THAT WE'VE BEEN UNSUCCESSFUL TO GET THIS ADMINISTRATION TO DO ANYTHING. Uh, WE'VE CALLED OUT THE ADMINISTRATION, uh, we've, held, WE'VE HELD HEARINGS, uh, WE'VE QUESTIONED uh, SECRETARY MAYORKAS uh, ABOUT WHAT HE AND HIS ADMINISTRATION uh, ARE DOING TO SECURE THE BORDER. Uh, And we've got no answers. Uh, A matter of fact, we've been told the border is secure, that there's not a crisis. But here we see the mayor of Washington, D.C., admit that just with the small number of immigrants that she has in her city, that she is to to the point, a crisis point, to where she's had to declare a public health emergency. Uh, And so I think the only way we're going to get this administration to move forward, to move off of some of the liberal viewpoints it has, is we're going to have to have democratic mayors democratic governors coming forward and helping us the white house
1: well i'm gonna have to cut you off there because we're out of time thanks for being with us yes sir we'll be right back here on washington watch stay with us
3: would you like to spend consistent time in god's word then join family research council on an exciting journey through the bible
5: Learn more at frc.org forward slash life.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in Tony today. So glad that you are with us. You know President Biden is concerned about political violence, but if you listened only to the president, you would think political violence is something only Trump voters are capable of. Well, this week, the Religious Freedom Institute released a threat advisory titled Religious Pro-Life Americans Under Attack, a threat assessment of post-Dobbs America. The report provides clear and direct evidence that pro-life organizations, churches, and schools face persistent criminal threats. Despite these ongoing dangers, there have been few arrests. Joining me now to discuss this is Nathaniel Hurd, a senior fellow for public policy for the Religious Freedom Institute and one of the authors of the report. Nathaniel, welcome to Washington Watch.
0: It's good to be with you, Joseph. Thanks for having me. Tell us what you found. This, uh, the criminal attacks that you referred to uh, are not a local problem. They're not an East Coast problem or a national problem. They're a national problem. Um, in looking at the and looking at the data, we saw that these attacks uh, covered uh, 26 states uh, plus the District of Columbia. Um, in addition, uh, the violence was pretty was pretty frightening. Um, you had uh, death threats that were being directed at uh, volunteers and employees of uh, pregnancy resource centers and uh, pro-life advocacy groups. Uh, you had uh, in addition to that arson, in some cases, uh, buildings were literally set on fire. and uh, the graffiti, which some people think is you know fairly benign and innocuous, was actually quite uh, intimidating uh, and intended to uh, thwart people from from doing their work. What struck us was that uh, this is not the first time we're seeing this. um the backdrop for all of this is an epidemic of violent attacks on Catholic sites, uh, particularly churches, going all the way back to uh, some of the George Floyd protests in May of 2020. 174 uh, sites attacked, uh, 38 states plus the District of Columbia. And in both cases, the response from federal law enforcement, uh, at least at at the headquarters level, has been mostly silence. Now,
1: Nathaniel, we're a big country. We've got 320 million people. Somebody might say, well, yeah, there's always bad actors and this stuff is normal. It's just kind of it's political passion and people get too excited and do things they shouldn't do. But this really isn't new. Do you have any indication from the study about whether we're seeing an increase in this or is this just the status quo that you're trying to shine a light on?
0: There have always been uh, criminal attacks against uh, religious people and their and their churches and their organizations. Uh, what struck us here was that at least when it came to uh, to the Catholic community uh, and the pro-life uh, community, this was something new. Um, in the case of pro-life organizations, uh, just the explosion, the concentration. Uh, the volume of attacks following the Dobbs leak uh, and then the Dobbs opinion itself was really quite exceptional. It wasn't a slow drip. Uh, We were seeing a lot of attacks uh, in a very short period of time. Now that's dissipated somewhat, um, but the findings in our assessment is that we can expect these attacks uh, to continue, maybe not at the same volume, but to continue. Uh, But we also know uh, from our experience in the United States and around the world, That when there's a culture of impunity, when there's a lack of accountability for perpetrators, uh, it emboldens others uh, to attack in this way. And in some cases uh, to attack in an even more uh, deadly fashion. Tell us a bit more
1: about that, because as you note there, the report concludes that these kind of attacks are likely to continue. Why do you think that is?
0: Uh, If... Potential criminals know that uh, if they uh, carry out these kind of uh, attacks, if they engage in this kind of violence, that uh, federal, state, local and county law enforcement uh, will investigate them, will prosecute them, will convict them, and, uh, and, and they'll end up in jail. Um, it'll deter at least some of them uh, if they think that they can do it and get away with it. Uh, And if they also look around and see that the media is not paying attention, um, these stories have mostly been ignored uh, by the national press. If they see that uh, most elected officials are also uh, overlooking this, if they see that there's a different standard for uh, other when there are attacks in other religious communities uh, and one for people that are uh, morally orthodox, that are pro-life and marriage and family, um, they're more likely to engage in this kind of violence. We see in many other contexts and cities all around the country the way,
1: the fact that if you don't enforce the criminal laws, you get more crime. But your report uh, expresses some concern about the way these attacks are being
0: handled by law enforcement. Tell us a bit more about that. Sure. Um you can't make a generalization about law enforcement across the country. In some instances, uh, local law enforcement in particular has responded uh, forcefully. They've investigated, they've arrested, they've prosecuted. Um, but if you look at uh, at least the political leadership in uh, our federal law enforcement agencies, the Department of Justice, the FBI, and the Department of Homeland Security, you um, They have the only times that they've really had anything to say about these attacks has been under duress. It's been in congressional hearings where members of Congress are asking them hard questions. It's been when members of Congress are sending them letters and and demanding answers. Uh, That's really only when they've had anything to say about this, the kind of energy that we've seen, the kind of response and condemnation that we've seen in attacks on uh, other religious communities in the past, Um, is simply not there. I I think what's really heartbreaking for us is that this consensus that used to exist in America, that whoever you are, whatever your faith, whatever, however you view contentious matters of the day, like like abortion or something else, uh, if you were violently attacked, we will condemn it and we will take action. And that seems to have frayed and broken down. Nathaniel Heard, last
1: question. What do you have to say to those pro-life churches and organizations that may find themselves in the crosshairs?
0: I'd say a few things. One, um, prepare yourselves. Um, I, there are some uh, congregations and organizations that seem to think that if they just keep their head, their head down, um, then they're not gonna be attacked. Uh, what we've seen with these attacks uh, and in other instances is that if you haven't been attacked yet, you might be in the future. So improve your physical security, improve your cybersecurity, engage with local law enforcement uh, and speak up, uh, engage with your elected representatives, demand that they uh, conduct oversight. Uh, this is something we're going to be tracking uh, over, the, over the coming year. Um, we've got a multi-year project focused on this and people can find out more information at RFI.org.
1: Nathaniel Hurd, Religious Freedom Institute, thanks for your time today. I appreciate it, thanks again. Coming up, more on the developments around the abortion abates, abortion we'll be right
4: back. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student? Specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12- to 15-week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org internships to apply.
6: What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. The website is TonyPerkins.com. As the nation continues to react to a post-Roe landscape, each state is having its own debate over abortion. In South Carolina, the legislature is currently debating a bill that would protect life at conception. And one of the debates has to do with whether there should be exceptions for the life of the mother. It turns out the idea that abortion could be necessary to save the life of the mother may be a relic of the 1970s medical knowledge. Joining me now to discuss this is Joy Stockbauer. She's a policy analyst for FRC's Center for Human Dignity. Joy recently published an article at the Washington Stand on this topic with the headline, States are ready to stop pretending that abortion can save lives. Joy, good to see you today.
5: Thanks for having me.
1: A little context here for this debate. Just give us a quick update on what's happening there in South Carolina.
5: Sure. So South Carolina's House um, had introduced and passed a great bill that was a life at conception bill. Um, But now the Senate has sent it back to the House as just an amendment to the state's already existing six-week protection.
1: And this bill is... Somewhat hung up in the Senate. They're debating it. They haven't just accepted the version that's come over from the House. But one of the things that's unique about this bill, and you point this out in your article, is the fact that it does not contain an an exception uh, for the life of the mother. Why do you think this is significant?
5: Well, this is a great update from uh, existing Life of the Mother exceptions that other pro-life protections have, because the Life of the Mother exception of the past implies that an induced abortion is ever necessary to save a mother's life. And this is just not true.
1: And tell us, I mean, that, that's going to be shocking to a lot of people who hear that because they imagine these situations where, and, and we've heard about these situations where women die in childbirth, and they they that is... Something that happens in the past, it happened much more uh, frequently when our medical, medical technology was not as developed as it is. But why do you say that it is never necessary uh, to save the life of a mother?
5: There can be times where medical treatments are necessary um, to save a mother's life in a medical emergency. But in these cases, ending a pregnancy by a premature delivery is an option that allows for doctors to treat both of their patients, both the pregnant mother and the child, without intentionally ending the life of the unborn child.
1: Now, in your article, you make a distinction uh, between a, a medical treatment that ends up resulting in the life of the mother and an abortion intended to end the life of the child, why do you think that distinction is important?
5: I think it's important to note the distinction between intentionally ending the life of an unborn child um, and an in- Um, an unfortunate circumstance where the unborn child is unable to survive because they've been born too prematurely. This is a tragedy, but abortion is a tragedy that is caused by intentionally ending an unborn child's life. It's important to note the distinction in the intentions. Yeah.
1: Well, it seems that in South Carolina, this argument has been persuasive because the legislation that passed the House did not contain an exception for the life of the mother Was that a sticking point in the House, or is this an argument that has essentially prevailed?
5: Um, The abortion lobby is doing everything that they can to convince women that um, pro-life protections will be dangerous for them. But this is just not true. Abortion is not needed to save a mother's life. Abortion is not health care. It is intentionally killing an unborn child. Um, And we need to be doing our best to make sure that legislators know this and are ready to defend life when their opportunity arises.
0: Now,
1: one of the other sticking points on the pro-life side uh, when it comes to these, whether it's 15-week bans or six-week bans or, or from conception, like we're seeing here in South Carolina, is whether there should be exceptions in the cases of rape and incest. Now, that issue appears to be an ongoing debate there in South Carolina What's the latest on that? Why should the legislature in in South Carolina pass a bill without those exceptions?
5: Well, there never needs to be an exception to a pro-life protection that allows abortion to occur in any circumstance. Um, The right to life is inherent to being a human being, and all unborn children deserve to have that right to life respected. That doesn't change dependent on the circumstances of conception.
1: Do you believe that the majority of the, of the Senate there in South Carolina is going to be persuaded by that argument? Is that an argument that's a winner to the, at this point, do you think?
5: I think that even in cases where it's not um, a popular argument, it's important to continue educating our fellow pro-lifers on why it is important to protect life regardless of any exception or any difficult circumstance that has um, arisen around the pregnancy.
1: Joy, do you have any indication about a schedule there in South Carolina?
5: I do not at this time. It remains to be seen.
4: Okay.
1: How many other states have adopted the position that South Carolina has where there is no exception uh, for the life of the mother? Is that a, are, we on, are we in the beginning of seeing states adopt that or is that a trend already?
5: If South Carolina were to pass the House um, version of this bill, they would be the first state to pass a pro-life protection that does not use the standard life of the mother exception. So that would be a great step forward for the pro-life movement to understand that there are no circumstances where abortion is necessary, not even in medical emergencies.
1: This is a great illustration of just how Uh, specific and personal the abortion debate is going to be in each state that encounters this and how in every state depending on the climate of that state the legislature of that state the population in that state you're going to see every debate over abortion be very particularized joy stockbauer thanks for joining us today
5: thank you for having me
1: we will continue to track that because we're going to have these debates all over the country for a very long time. Coming up is our worldview segment. Why is it that atheists give twice as much money to political campaigns as white evangelicals? We'll talk about that and other things when we come back. Stay with
5: us.
6: What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood.
4: Visit frc.org slash internships to apply.
2: Welcome back to Washington
1: Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony. Tony will be back in the chair on Monday. Make sure you plan to join us next week, September 14th through the 16th in atlanta first baptist atlanta for the pray vote stand summit it's going to be one of the highlights of your year go to prayvotestand.org slash summit for all the details as well as registration that's prayvotestand.org slash summit promise you're going to learn a lot if you show up and i hope you do now as we've discussed on washington watch senate democrats are pushing a vote to codify The redefinition of marriage, perhaps as early as next week. But they'll need 10 Republicans to do it. Now, in addition to tossing aside the definition of marriage as it has stood for millennia, this bill poses significant threats for religious liberty. Joining me to discuss the threats as well as the worldview implications of all of it is David Claussen, the director of the Center for Biblical Worldview. David,
8: good to see you. Hey, good to see you as well, Joseph.
1: Now, first, let's talk about the bill, because people are checking in, and they're saying, why are we talking about same-sex marriage? Didn't the Supreme Court do this, end this debate a while ago? Um, What's going on with this bill, and why do we need to care?
8: Yeah, so what's going on with the bill is, is you're right, the context of this is in 2015, uh, the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision, the Obergefell v. Hodges decision. Uh, basically imposed uh, so-called same-sex marriage on all 50 states. Uh, That happened in 2015. Uh, It really—sometimes it it seems like that was forever ago, but in human history, that's just a little, (laughs) tiny little fraction of time. Um, But in 2012, uh, following the Dobbs decision, Uh, Clarence Thomas, in his uh, concurring opinion, uh, made a note that some of these prior precedents of the Supreme Court should maybe be revisited. And what that did uh, is kind of set off um, Senate or uh, House Democrats. Nancy Pelosi uh, decided to uh, kind of rush this bill called the Respect for Marriage Act that would essentially codify uh, the Obergefell decision into federal law. I would argue it does much more than just codify. Uh, but basically, putting in federal statute uh, what the Obergefell decision decided, it was passed uh, in July uh, by the House, and now that the Senate has uh, reconvened after their recess, uh, Chuck Schumer has promised uh, that in the next couple of weeks he is going to bring it to the floor of the U.S. Senate for a vote.
1: And David, what would the implication of that be? Because a lot of people would say, "Well, there's already same-sex marriage."
8: That would just be the status quo. This can't be that big of a deal. Why is it a big deal? Yeah, it's, it's a big deal because, like I said, uh, you know, for the last seven years, um, supreme, uh, you know, the, the the kind of regime, the legal regime that we're under under Obergefell uh, imposed same-sex marriage, but by codifying it as a federal statute, what that's going to do, Joseph, is uh, kind of the legal liability um, It's just going to increase that threat. So before Obergefell, we already. Probably our listeners are familiar with the Baronel Stutzmans and the Kelvin Cochrans um, and the, the Jack Phillips, uh, those who had uh, uh, beliefs on marriage and sexuality. And uh, local, state, federal government was going after folks like that. Since Obergefell was decided, we've already seen an avalanche of legal uh, assaults on these folks. And by putting that in federal statute, enshrining same-sex marriage, that's just going to, in my view, Joseph, open up the floodgates uh, against anyone, uh, individuals or Christian colleges, wedding vendors uh, who would believe, who would say that uh, marriage is between a man and a woman, uh, and that would kind of have a biblical sexual ethic. And so, it, it's been bad in the last seven years. Uh, by codifying this, it's it would be a lot worse.
1: Now, that's the legal part of this, but of course you're not exactly a lawyer. You're the center for, you're the director of our center for biblical worldview. And I want to get into the worldview part of this as well, because people might say, well, uh, you know, there's these legal challenges, but ultimately we live in a fallen world and we know that bad things are going to happen and persecution is normal. And, and, Anyway, if we change the law, if Congress changes the law about marriage, it doesn't change God's definition of marriage. So because you can't change that, we don't need to worry about this. Why should Christians worry about what federal statute says the definition of marriage is when we
8: know God's understanding of marriage isn't going to change? And that is an important point to make. You know, It doesn't matter what the Supreme Court says. It doesn't matter what the U.S. Senate says. The Bible says that marriage is between a man and a woman. But I think the important worldview perspective here, Joseph, is that our law is inherently pedagogical. And what I mean by that is people look at our laws and they're, you know, we're always, you know, people say you can't legislate morality. We are always legislating some form of morality. And when you put things in law, it does kind of get uh, imprint uh, that this in some way must be morally praiseworthy. And I think our laws should reflect truth. Uh, positive laws, the law of man, uh, should reflect uh, natural law. It should reflect God's law as revealed in Scripture. And so, I don't think anyone would uh, should want our law to be telling or, yeah, our law uh, to be telling a lie about something as basic and fundamental uh, as marriage. And I'll just add on that point, Joseph. You know, for six thousand years of human history. Uh, every society in every place at every time has understood that marriage is a relationship between a man and a woman, and they 've recognized it, even pagan societies such as ancient Greece and Rome have recognized it uh, because they 've recognized that this is what 's best for children and uh, what again, by codifying this into federal statute it 's once again t- our law will be teaching that the uh, the adult desires uh, adult uh, longings for sexual fulfillment trumps and is more important uh, than the rights of children.
1: And that's an important point. In the United States, we have the blessing of being a place where power is invested in the people. And that means whatever decisions are made in Washington, D.C., or in your local state capital, or in your local city hall, are made on your behalf and on my behalf. And to the extent that we have a say, and we do have a say, and we're fortunate to have a say— we want to do what we can to make sure that the law does what Romans 13 says it should do, which is punish evil and reward what is good. And, and if we live in a world where the government is uh, rewarding what is evil and punishing what is good, that may be beyond our control, and there have been many examples of that happening historically. But it should be despite our protest, not because of our silence or our apathy and so it's one of these things where we want to make sure that our voice is heard in our the pressure that we exert the the place where we put our thumb on the scale that we do put our thumb on the scale and when we do so we do it in the right direction understanding that God would be pleased with the, the with the pressure that we are exerting ultimately the results are up to Him but we cannot be caught just sitting around being apathetic about things that God is not apathetic about um, the question is not you know is this a political issue or is this a religious issue uh, the question is does god care. And on this question of uh, the definition of marriage and what marriage is and how that works in society, there's no doubt that god cares about that. Therefore we care, therefore we get to have a say. But David, there's a lot of other things I want to get to uh, with you uh, because to this point of you know, kind of putting your uh, thumb on the scale and whether we should be legislating uh, morality. Uh, Our illustrious vice president, Kamala Harris, uh, she actually went to church recently, which is good for her, uh, but it didn't go exactly the way that we might have hoped. Uh, She was at a gathering of the National Baptist Association. And here's what she had to say. This is, let's play clip four.
7: As extremists,
8: work, to take away the freedom of women to make decisions about their own bodies, faith leaders are taking a stand, knowing one does not have to abandon
7: their faith or deeply held religious beliefs to agree that a woman should have the ability to make decisions about her
3: own body and not have her government tell her what to do.
1: David Clawson, if I can paraphrase the vice president, I think she's saying it's completely compatible to love abortion and be a Christian. Should we be concerned about that?
8: Well, the vice president is just wrong uh, what she said. To hold her position, Joseph, you have to abandon uh, Christianity 101. Uh, she says that you can uh, be pro-choice and still be a, a faithful Christian in good standing. Let, let's be clear uh, what abortion is. It's the intentional taking of an unborn child. Uh, let's just look at the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. Uh, that, If that's all the Bible said, I think Christians would rightly be pro-life. But Thankfully, uh, that's not all the Bible says. Uh, There are other verses, uh, Psalm 139, Luke 1. uh, Really, the whole uh, context of the Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, affirms the personhood of the unborn. And so, unfortunately, what the vice president said might make a good soundbite, but it would fail any basic theology test at any Orthodox seminary or Bible college in this country.
1: And one of the points that she made there is women... You can be a Christian and believe that women have the right over her body. And there's this assumption there, and I'm going to continue to beat this drum, that when we become Christians, one of the fundamental things that we must embrace is the idea that I don't belong to myself, that you don't belong to yourself, that we are bodies, that we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. So this idea that we have control over ourselves is an an inherently anti-Christ uh, position. Now, that's a very offensive thing to say in a culture that provide that, that prizes autonomy above almost everything else. But that is one of the fundamental claims of the gospel. In addition to needing Jesus for redemption of our sins, because of that, we don't belong to ourselves. We are slaves to Christ. But David, uh, it should be noted that this happened in a church. She was making overtly political arguments in a church. Have you seen uh, the cries, uh, the the concerns over the theocracy that our vice president is creating in that church by combining politics and religion?
8: Yeah, it's incredible, Joseph. It doesn't seem that the New York Times or Washington Post or anyone in the mainstream media is upset by these remarks. Um, You know, it's not... That long ago, I think maybe three or four years ago, when the incumbent uh, Vice President Mike Pence spoke to the Southern Baptist Convention, and uh, if you recall, again, it wasn't that long ago, he was widely panned for conflating uh, church and state. Uh, the leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention, who had invited him uh, to just give an address, uh, they were ridiculed. The Vice President was ridiculed, and all of a sudden, you started hearing calls of, "Oh, look, there go those white right-wing." evangelicals trying to impose a theocracy, a christian nationalism. uh it's intriguing that we haven't heard any of those uh you know fears raised about uh the, the current vice president addressing another gathering of denominations. it's it's a complete hypocrisy of course. um but it does speak to the fact um and uh, well, I, let me just—I would want to also add—you know, just I don't object to her speaking to pastors. I think our our, our religious leaders and pastors should hear uh, from our elected officials. Uh, but the double standard in this case um, yeah. is very noticeable.
1: And the reason that's noteworthy is because we do hear accusations of Christian nationalism, and and it and it's also true from our perspective. Again, biblical worldview—we don't want to. Um, invert the hierarchy we know that we are whatever our political positions are must be an expression of the gospel and we have to make sure that the gospel is primary that we aren't first whatever our political allegiance is we're first pro-God, and then everything flows from that. What he thinks, we think, and that informs what we think about uh, about the world. But of course, uh, people like you and I are often accused of Christian nationalism because we would dare make an application of the gospel to what's going on in the culture to a quote-unquote political issue. The fact that that allegation will never be made uh, with a speech from Uh, Vice President Harris, is just evidence that they're not sincere when they're concerned about uh, Christian nationalism and and people co-opting the gospel for religious purposes. The reality is they just don't like your position and my position, so they want to make you be quiet, and they're going to try to shame you into silence. But they're not sincerely concerned about a theocracy, and it's important that we graciously and courageously just carry on and just let the noise be the noise and continue to do what God wants us to do. But one other issue, David, before we get out of here, uh, a study from Harvard University's Cooperative Election Study found that atheists, and I think this might be related to our last discussion, atheists are actually twice as likely to give money to political campaigns than white evangelicals. Uh, Does this um, disrupt the narrative that white evangelicals are all Christian nationalists? And the numbers, let me say, 50% of, uh, and this is as of 2020, uh, 2020 is the year, yes, 50% of atheists had given to a a political campaign, 26% of white
8: evangelicals. What does this mean? Yeah, and that pattern holds through a lot of different election cycles. Just put it uh, succinctly, Joseph, worldview, I would say giving is indicative of worldview. And a lot of uh, atheists who are not Christians who don't have the understanding that Christ is Lord uh, are going to think that politics is ultimate, politics is the most important thing in the world. And I'm actually not surprised that those who don't have a biblical worldview are going to put that sense of ultimacy into politics Now, in the same breath, I want to say Christians are some of the most generous people in the world. I I pulled up some stats, Joseph. Uh, Christians, uh, 62% of those who are in religious household uh, regularly give to charity, where it's 46% of non-religious. And in 2016 was the number I found, $122.94 billion uh, was given to churches and other religious institutions. So Christians are giving, uh, but maybe they're just giving to different things rather than uh, just simply politics. And I think that is an overflow of worldview. If you believe Christ is Lord, you believe his church is uh, the most significant institution institution here. Uh, it makes sense that more of your uh, charity dollars would go to those institutions uh, rather than political campaigns and uh, elections, although I would say I think mm-hmm. you should do both, uh, yeah. but I think this stat is revealing.
1: And I think it's true that uh, white evangelicals and atheists have something in common in that we all understand there's something wrong in the world and we want to fix it. Yeah. But. To your point, to that in the data I saw, $131 billion in 2020 given just to churches, and that doesn't count all the other philanthropy that goes outside the church. Uh, That comes from Christians who understand that politics is not the ultimate solution. Atheists, however, have nowhere else to go. They can't turn to God and the church and the gospel to solve things. So it's ultimately their tithe. Where does their tithe go to? To their God. Who is their God? Their government. So they're very likely to give to their God in the hopes that their God can solve the problem. So I think that in part, at least, explains uh, why they give so much money to political candidates. But David, we're out of time. Thanks for being with us today.
8: Thank you, Joseph.
1: And friends, we thank you for being with us today as well. Been great to be with you. Have a great weekend. We will see you on Monday. But until then, fear God and nothing else.